Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You would never guess from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh and I do a thing here in the city. It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that's what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. So I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, as you listen to the series, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about James V. And James V is remembered by historians as a kind of Catholic boogeyman. Um, but that's only because the history, it was written by the Protestant reformers who would come after James V. And most of it was just utter nonsense. You know, like stuff about Rangers being the most successful football club in the world. You know what I mean? That sort of pish. And um, James V's death, it was arguably more disastrous for the country than the death of his father a generation earlier. Six days prior to James V's death, he learnt of the of the birth of his baby daughter. And on hearing the news, he uttered the now famous words, It came with a lass and it will gang with a lass. It came with a lassie and it will go with a lassie. And basically what that is a reference to is the beginning, the start of the Royal Stuart line, which was started by Marjorie Bruce, Robert the Bruce's daughter, when she married Walter Stuart the Stuart. That was the, the, the start of the Royal Stuart line. And now that James V had a female heir, he was convinced that that meant that the Royal Stuarts were coming to an end. Um, and it was a disaster. Do you know what I mean? Like having a, a wee girl was a disaster because the Stuart men had been smashing it up to that point. They'd been absolutely killing it. Like, two had been removed for being so incompetent it was felt that they could no longer do their job. One was kicked by a horse. One was killed by an exploding cannon that he stood too close to. One was stabbed to death in a drain. Another stabbed to death in a barn. One died while charging like a fucking maniac at the head of a doomed army. And the other one burnt innocent women alive and stole money from the church. But aye, you know, the problem was that James's heir had a vagina. Presumably the lack of a dick made it more difficult for her to behave like one. You know, and if the coronavirus has taught us anything, folks, it is that female leaders are just the worst, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Like keeping people alive and keeping economies going. Honestly, give me that mental Brazilian guy any day of the week, folks. Sign me up. Now, listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the, the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. All right. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a podcast that's mainly... Tory bashing mixed in with some jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. Um, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, don't start here. Go back to the first episode. I don't really talk about anything topical on the podcast. They all go in chronological order and they give a decent bit of background into the episode that follows. Uh, right, so here you go, folks. Without further ado, here is your podcast all about James V. Uh, I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! James was only 17 months old when he made his first TikTok video. It was of his coronation at Stirling on the 21st of September 1513. And his coronation, it came off the back of the most disastrous defeat in Scottish history at Flodden and the death of his father 12 days earlier. Now, Flodden is arguably the most calamitous defeat in Scottish history. And if you've never heard of it, don't worry. Do you know what I mean? Like, we have suffered quite a lot of calamitous defeats in our history. It can be quite hard to keep up. 
And in the aftermath, the population, they were terrified a full-scale invasion by the English was imminent. So in Edinburgh, for example, the city burgesses, they ordered the women to go to church and pray and for the men to take up arms and build a new city wall. Christopher Columbus, he had discovered America about 20 years earlier and uh, he had evidently taken back wall building and praying back to Europe with him. Now, people going to church to pray the English don't come is also what the the host country of the European Championships do every four years as well. It's please, please, please let the English stay at home. Now, the Flodden Wall, as it would be known, this wall they built around Edinburgh, it was um, it was to protect against the imminent invasion that they thought was coming from England. And sections of wall, they're still in place to the day to this day. Sorry, it's the last thing that was built in Edinburgh that wasn't student accommodation. Now. Thankfully, the invasion from the English, it never came. Well, I mean, not at least until the universities went back in September. Henry VIII, he was more concerned with his war in France than he was a war with Scotland. And he made no attempt to follow up his victory at Flodden with a full-scale invasion of Scotland. After James IV's death, the Queen Margaret Tudor became James V's guardian and regent, assisted by a council that was made up of James Beaton, the Archbishop of Glasgow, Alexander Gordon, the Earl of Huntley, Huntley, sorry, James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, and Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Angus, and head of the Red Douglases. Now, the council were wary of Margaret Tudor, as she was the sister of Henry VIII, and they suspected that although she was in Scotland, she had the interests of the English leader at heart, a bit like Ruth Davidson, I suppose. And so they searched for a suitable guardian to replace Margaret Tudor. A council of men thought that they knew better than the child's mother, just like the pro-life movement. And the man the general council settled on was John Stuart, the Duke of Albany. Now, John Stuart was the son of James III's brother Alexander, who, after the Battle of Sochiburn in 1488, had fled to France. And Alexander died in France in 1485, a few years after he had made an unsuccessful attempt at deposing King James IV and a rebellion that was supported by the English in 1482. So Scotland was inviting a man to come and be, re- to come and be regent, whose father had tried to depose the father of the newly appointed Scots king. Apparently, they had shorter memories than the stupid pricks in Aberdeenshire who voted in a Tory. Albany's mother, she was French. Uh, Albany spoke no English. He served in the French army and he was a French subject. Scotland have been encouraging Europeans to come and work here since 1513. And by the way, I would happily get a French guy with no English to run the country purely to piss off Nigel Farage. With the backing of French munitions and soldiers, Albany arrived in Scotland in May 1515 where he took up residence at Dunbar Castle. In 1514, Margaret Tudor remarried less than a year after the death of her husband James IV and she married Archibald Douglas, head of the Red Douglases and Earl of Angus. Now the marriage voided Margaret's guardianship of James V because as part of James IV's will, he stated that the king's guardian or she should be the king's guardian as long as she remained unmarried. A dead guy was telling women what they can and can't do from beyond the grave. James IV was being as unreasonable as our Lord Saviour Jesus Christ. And so Margaret, she was forced to give up custody of James to Albany and her and Angus moved to England where their marriage broke down quite publicly not long after. For the remainder of James V's minority, the nobles would squabble over who had possession of the king. Well, at least until he announced his intention was to stay at Barcelona all along. And at this time, the question in Scotland was one that would dominate Scottish politics for much of the 16th century. Should Scotland have a closer alliance with France 
or break ties with France and forge a new alliance with England. It was a tough decision, you know, deciding which country we most wanted to be patronised by. And considering his French, his French credentials, it will come as no surprise that during Albany's reign as regent, Scotland formed closer ties with France. Now, Albany, he had proved to be a stabilising influence in Scotland. He was a skilled diplomat who renegotiated a renewal of the old alliance in 1517. In 1522 and 1523, Albany brought a French expeditionary force to Scotland, and when English raiding forces burned Kelso and Jedburgh on the borders, this Franco-Scottish army drove them to the border. But in 1524, Albany returned to France, and he never came back to Scotland. So, the General Council, they made Margaret Tudor guardian of the king once again, but only after she promised to be on her best behaviour as an inverted commas honest and loyal Scotswoman. And Henry VIII, he had fallen out with his sister because of her pursuit of a divorce from the Earl of Angus. Henry VIII didn't believe in divorce in 1524. He'd fairly change his tune, wouldn't he? He's just like Boris Johnson in that respect. I don't. I mean, obviously, Boris Johnson has always been in favour of cheating on and divorcing his wives. I was referring more to back in the day when he was a supporter of EU membership. Now, not only did Henry fall out with Margaret, he actually took the side of her ex-husband Archibald Douglas, the Earl of Angus, to try and create a pro-English party in Scotland, and thus the beginnings of the Scottish Conservative Party. Henry VIII siding with his brother-in-law over his sister is the most gammon move imaginable from the most gammon of all English monarchs. And Margaret, she further alienated herself when she married for a third time. And this time it was to a minor knight, Henry Stuart. Prince Andrew approved, you know, like uh, minor knights being his favourite, you can. Oh yes, it's manners night and the feeling's right. Oh yes, it's manners night, oh what a night. James V's minority ended officially on his 14th birthday in April 1526. At least that's what he told his pals. You know, his, uh, his minority actually ended when he was 17. And James V's stepfather, the Earl of Angus, took possession of the king through an audacious coup. A scheme had been devised to have James rotate between a group of four magnets every three months in a kind of rotating regency. The scheme had been devised for James's own protection and to stop power wrangling amongst the nobles. But the first group of magnates, led by the Earl of Angus, they simply refused to hand the king over to the second group. And since James was technically of age... Angus was able to coerce him into annulling the scheme and making him Chancellor. Angus then packed the royal household with his own relatives and supporters and kept James under close supervision at all times. James was a, a young royal whose mum wasn't there to look after him and was now a prisoner of his evil royal stepfather, just like Prince Harry. Now, there was an attempt to break James free at Linlithgow. The, uh, the escape attempt was headed up by the Earl of Lennox, who was killed in the fighting. And James, he remained a prisoner of his stepfather until his 16th birthday, when he managed to slip his supervisors at Falkland Palace and ride through the night to Stirling Castle. It's just like the, it's like the lyrics of a Bruce Springsteen song. Do you know what I mean? Like, a, I rode through the night to reach a baby, my broken heart, no high school diploma, no jobs at the saw or the steel mill, baby. 
<laughs> Bruce Springsteen obviously doesn't sound anything like that. But anyway, uh, when James reached Stirling, the, the Earls of Argyll, Arran, Bothwell, Eglinton, Montrose, Murray and Rothes, they closed ranks around him and the Earl of Angus was dismissed as Chancellor and replaced with Gavin Dunbar, the Archbishop of Glasgow. The King and his supporters, they rode into Edinburgh in July 1528, forcing Angus to retreat to Tantallon Castle in East Lothian where he was holed up for months like a fresher in the halls of Glasgow University. In October 1528, after a failed three-week siege of Tantallon Castle, the Scottish Parliament negotiated a five-year truce with England in order to break off Henry VIII's support of Angus. In Angus, he was allowed to move to England and become a pensioner of Henry VIII. His lands were forfeited and the Douglases were disgraced. And the Douglases remain unpopular in Scotland to this day. Like Douglas Ross, for example, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, is also a linesman. He's a Tory linesman. For fuck's sake, that's like learning Michael Gove as a part-time traffic warden. It had been a strange minority for James V. He would have had no memory of his father. He had been caught in this tug-of-war between his mother and his stepfather, and in a tug-of-war between France and England. He was a prisoner of his stepfather, and he had lost his baby brother. There was vicious rumours that James's younger brother, Alexander, had been poisoned by the Duke of Albany. I mean, none of this is obviously as traumatic as your Wayne's gluten intolerance, but still, a fairly traumatic childhood for James V. Nonetheless, and after he had dealt, at least in part, with his stepfather and the Douglases, James was ready to begin his personal rule, although on that front, there was still unfinished business as far as James was concerned. James V is often described as the poor man's king. It makes him sound like an Elvis tribute act. But the name is derived from James's habit of disguising himself and moving freely amongst his subjects to hear what they had to say about the king and hear complaints that would otherwise never reach him. Now, many of these stories that were perpetuated by Sir Walter Scott, who said that when James was travelling in disguise, he would use the pseudonym Goodman Balagiach, which is one hell of an alias, that, isn't it? It would be brilliant if they got James... If they, like, if James Bond was played by a Tuchter called Goodman Balagiach, so we got the name's uh, the name's Balangiach, Goodman Balangiach. So we got well, Mister Balangiach, Mister Bolin, Mister Baston Balangiach, pal. I mean, that would, that would certainly take some of the suave out of the James Bond films, eh? wouldn't it? Now, there was this one occasion when James was out wandering, most likely being about as inconspicuous as Jacob Rees-Mogg trying to disguise himself as working class. He was set upon by a gang of robbers at Cramon Bridge near Edinburgh, and he was saved by a farm worker, a guy called John Howison, who took him home and washed his wounds. Now, when James revealed his true identity, he asked the man what he wanted as a reward, and Howison said that he wanted to own the farm that he worked on. So, James granted him the farm on condition that John should always be ready to wash the monarch's hands at Holyrood or at Cramon Bridge. And the washer of the sovereign's hands is a ceremonial title that is still held by the descendants of John Howison, who are expected to wash the sovereign's hands once in their reign. It's a less attractive title these days in COVID times, admittedly. And the current holder of the title is the Laird of Crawford Castle in Kilmarnock. So, you know, being from Kilmarnock, it also doubles up as the one wash that he takes for the year as well. And it's a nice story. James is running with John Howison, but really when you think about it, all James did was make a, a completely innocent farmer 
unemployed so he could help out his new pal, which makes me think that James V was James V was likely a Tory all along. In 1530, James V descended in force on the disputed borderlands of the West Marches. These were the constantly disputed lands between Scotland and England. And his main target was the notorious border raider Johnny Armstrong of Kilnocky. Now, border raids had become a way of life in the endlessly disputed borderlands, and the Armstrongs had been a law unto themselves for many years. The borders, well, they remain a law unto themselves to this day. It's the only part of Scotland that votes Tory and prefers rugby. You know, weirdos. And Johnny Armstrong, uh, he boasted that he didn't recognise the authority of the Scots King or of the King of England. If he didn't like Scotland or England, he was probably a Celtic fan. So James invited Armstrong to a, a, a peace meeting at Kerlenrig with 50 unarmed followers, but James V broke faith and had them all arrested. Most were hanged and only a few spares. The royal justice had been swift and terrible, and the, the story of the swoop on the Armstrongs has been immortalised in a famous Borders ballad, the Ballad of Johnny Armstrong. And the ballad is written from the king's perspective. It is his response as Armstrong accuses him of being deceitful, untrustworthy, and pleads for his life. And while he pleads for his life, James V quips, Away, away, thou traitor strang, Out my sich thou must soon be, I grant it ne'er a traitor's life, And now I'll not begin with thee. And I actually have, uh, I've written a ballad about another famous Scottish Armstrong, Stuart Armstrong, uh, who is the man who gave the ball away in the last minute in 2017 in a game against the English and it led to the English equalising with the last kick of the ball and, uh, and the ballad goes a little bit something like this it goes away away just boot the fucking ball away you stupid prick during his reign James V was ruthless in his imposition of law and order even in the highlands and islands where the king's rule was traditionally not accepted James would regularly attend circuit courts where his presence brought a, a sense of dread James's presence was enough to ensure a visible and merciless punishment of lawless behaviour would be reached for even the most minor of misdemeanours he was the VAR of his day, basically. And James V, he installed the Court of Session, which is uh, the, the highest, it's the Supreme Court for civil cases in Scotland and has been since James V installed it in 1532. The Court of Session, I also think, would be a very good name for a pub. I was setting up a pub. And in 1540, uh, James V took a cruise around his kingdom, taking a fleet of 12 well-armed ships sailing from the Firth of Forth to Orkney, Lewis, Skye, Mill and Islay before rounding the Mill of Kintyre and ending his trip at Dumbarton Castle. James V is a king who loved law and order and loved taking cruises. Literally the only two things that anyone over the age of 60 looks for in a politician. Despite his dishing out of royal justice, James had been unhappy that his stepfather, the Earl of Angus, had gotten away so lightly and was allowed to escape to England. James wanted his vengeance and singled out three pig three people to receive the wrath that he felt they were due. John, the master of Forbes, a supporter of the Douglases, was found guilty of trumped-up charges of plotting to shoot the king and was hung, drawn and quartered on the 14th of July, 1537. Now, being hung, drawn and quartered was an English form of execution previously unknown in Scotland. In Scotland, we preferred a far more brutal form of punishment what we would do is we'd leave prisoners outside to be eaten alive by midges instead far worse than being hung drawn and quartered that 
Now, next to receive the King's wrath was Sir James Hamilton of Finnert. Finnert was the illegitimate son of the first Earl of Arran and was thus tainted with his association with the Douglas clan. Hamilton had supervised the significant building works James had carried out at Falkland and Linlithgow palaces and at Edinburgh and Stirling castles. His contribution to Scotland's Renaissance architecture, however, could not save him. He was hanged on the 16th of August, 1540 on trumped up conspiracy to assassinate the king charges it was a bit like having kevin mcleod executed now hamilton's main crime was likely his sizable wealth which was seized by the crown now sizable wealth is about the only crime that donald trump can't be accused of do you know what i mean considering how often the guy has bankrupted himself. The most famous of James V's purges was Janet Douglas, the Countess of Glamis, one of the four sisters of the Earl of Angus. Now, Janet was young and strikingly beautiful. She'd actually been charged in 1528 in the first year of James V's personal rule with art and part assistance to her brothers, the, the Douglas brothers, obviously, but she was granted a pardon. Then again, in 1532, James had her charged with having her first husband, Lord Lyon, Lord Cla sorry, John Lyon, the Lord of Glamis poisoned but again the charges were dropped Janet remarried after the death of her first husband and she married one of Lord Lyon's kingsmen and thus was able to resume her title to the Glamis estates and James V was not happy they kept arresting Janet and the charges kept getting dropped but James would not stop until he got what he wanted Janet Douglas destroyed like a 15th century Alex Salmon he finally got his way on the 17th of July, 1537, when the 33-year-old Countess of Glamis was charged and convicted of conspiring to poison the king. She was burned alive on Castle Hill in Edinburgh, chained to a stake and surrounded by barrels of tar, which seems like overkill, doesn't it? You know, like last time I was near burnt alive, I was on a beach in Mallorca. I wasn't surrounded by barrels of tar, but I was surrounded by empty cans of Australia. And Janet Douglas's husband, presumably seeing and smelling probably what had happened to his wife he uh, he made an attempt to escape from edinburgh castle and plunged to his death while he did so james v is the greatest royal patron of architecture of all the stuart monarchs james v was the man behind the decision to make every program aired on channel 4 between the hours of 8 p.m and 9 p.m a property show Drawing directly from the opulence of the French Renaissance court, he transformed Falkland and Linlithgow palaces. Now, James, he loved beautiful paintings, poetry and architecture, but also loved tying people to barrels of tar and burning them alive. He was kind of like Hannibal Lecter, I suppose. And James V, he's known to have had at least seven mistresses. There was a sleepy, dopey, bashful, donner, blitzit, comet, cute, wait, hold on, I've, uh, I've mixed up mistresses, dwarves and, and reindeers there. Now, by his missus, mistresses, he had a lot of illegitimate children, the most notable of which was James Stuart, who was born to Lady Margaret Erskine in 1531. James Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots' half-brother, would become the future Earl of Murray and regent to James VI. And James V, he had at least seven illegitimate sons who he put into high-ranking positions within the within the church, so he could make money through them. This is back when, like, churches and abbeys had to make money through the religion as opposed to, you know, charging 20 quid to get into them. And so James put all of his illegitimate sons into high-ranking positions within the abbeys so that he could make money, acting like a kind of holy pimp. Which, now that I've written that joke, I can't help but think of the Pope as one great big giant holy pimp. Colin was a, a small-time player on the European stage, but a marriage with the King of Scots would have diplomatic advantages for France and England. And so who James was to marry was a 
topic of hot discussion in, in European courts. Now, as part of the Treaty of Rouen, this was the renegotiation of the old alliance that had been negotiated by the Duke of Albany in 1517. James was to be married to a French princess, but Henry VIII, he was trying to coax Scotland away from the old alliance through a marriage to his daughter Mary Tudor. Now, Scotland listened to various proposals to put pressure on France until eventually... In 1536, it was decided that James would marry Marie de Bourbon, the daughter of the Duke de Vendôme. Now, Marie, she may have been pretty hard, you know what I mean, like Duke Vendôme, solid lassie, but she was uh, she was unfortunately not the bonniest. And when James was presented with her portrait, he demanded more money as part of her dowry. In 1536, he sailed to France to see his future wife for himself, and on seeing poor Marie, James, he broke off the marriage. He thought he was too good for Marie. It's the same reason why Jesus never got his hole. Do you know what I mean? Well, was it you do? I'm the son of God. You can hardly live up to that, can you? So instead, James made an offer to the French king, Francois I, to marry his daughter Madeleine. Now, Madeleine was in delicate health and Francois was reluctant to let her go to Scotland. The climate was much gentler in France and Francois feared the effects, the harshness of the Scottish climate would have on his daughter. And Scotland, to be fair as well to Francois, is also the unhealthiest country in Europe. Scotland Scotland is a country that has the highest rates of obesity and heroin use in Europe, which incidentally makes us the only country in the world that has overweight heroin addicts. Do you know what I mean? I put a wee bit of weight on over Christmas there and my mum immediately thought I was on smack. What other country would you get that in? Eventually, Francois agreed and Madeleine and James were married at Notre Dame on the 1st of January 1537 in great splendour. And the couple sailed to Scotland in May, but just as the French king had feared, like a London comic newly arrived at the fringe, Madeleine died shortly after her arrival in Scotland. Madeleine died at Holyrood on the 7th of July 1532. After Madeleine's death, negotiations soon began for James to marry another French princess. And while he was in France, James met Marie de Guise. Now, Marie de Guise was the sister of uh, Francois, the Duke de Guise, and of Charles the Cardinal of Lorraine, meaning that she was a member of the most powerful noble family in France, perhaps even Europe. They were incredibly wealthy, the de Guises. You know what I mean? Like, every uh, every winter, they'd fly south for the winter. Because, <laughs> like, de Guises, like, Guise, going, okay, fine. Uh, and when James met Marie de Guise, she was married to the Duke de Longueville, but she, uh, she'd been widowed at the age of 22. The Duke had died just a few weeks before Madeleine. And Henry VIII, he was also apparently interested in Marie de Guise. He had, uh, he, had ca- he had complimented Marie's body, to which she replied, yes, I have a very narrow neck, which is a sort of outstanding patter that would make her such a beloved queen in Scotland. So uh, James and Marie de Guise, they were uh, married by proxy. And in June 1538, Marie de Guise came over to Scotland. And um, Marie would play an important role in Scottish politics, leading the government as regent to her absent daughter. And Marie de Guise, she was intelligent. She was well-versed in international and domestic politics. And despite being from another country, Marie's reputation was cemented in Scotland and she became very, very popular, just like Rod Stewart, I suppose. Marie de Guise was crowned at Holyrood on the 22nd of February 1540 and three months later she gave birth to a son, Prince James, who would die less than a year later. And a second son, Arthur, born in 1541, 
would die after his baptism as well. The latter years of James V's reign were framed by the wave of protest against the corrupt medieval order of Western Christendom. In Germany, the monk Martin Luther protest against, and he protested against indulgences, which at the most basic form were essentially a means whereby you could be absolved of sin by paying the church. You could even you could even build up credit by paying the church for future sins, which of all of all the shit that the Catholic Church have got away with, that has to be the funniest one, that. That's brilliant. Now, the watchwords of Luther's spiritual rebellion against the Catholic Church was justification by faith alone, which essentially meant that it was individual conscience that mattered, and ecclesiastical hierarchies such as priests, bishops, archbishops, even the Pope, they weren't important. And to be fair, bishops are pretty useless. I mean, they can only move diagonally. Which is some important advice for children, by the way. If you uh, if you stand directly in front of a bishop, then they can't hurt you. All right. Now, individual conscience alone is a nice sentiment until you consider the member of Boris Johnson's cabinet and how spiritually vacant they all are. And so the Reformation was essentially a rebellion against the corruption of the Catholic Church and saying that bishops and the Pope they were a bunch of useless old pricks. The best possible bit of imagery I could use for this would be that episode of Father Ted when uh, Ted kicks Bishop Brennan up the arse. That's basically what the Reformation was. And in England in 1534, Henry VIII, he broke from the Catholic Church. He usurped control of the church in England, not wanting money to go to some pointy-headed prick in Rome, but to an overweight, psychopathic prick in England instead. Henry VIII broke from the church for both political and personal reasons. The main reason being the break from Rome allowed him to become head of the Church of England and collect all of the money from the dissolution of the monasteries and to divorce and remarry at will, which he famously did. Without Rome holding him back, Henry VIII could chop off as many heads and as grab as many pussies as he pleased. Now the Pope, he was desperately trying to fight back against the Protestant Reformation and was desperate for James V's support. So James extorted vast amounts of money from the Pope to guard against heretic England, saying, listen, if you want me to keep being Catholic, then you better give me a shit ton of money. Which, incidentally, is also how Brendan Rodgers would negotiate a new contract at Celtic as well. Fearful of James V entering into a European Catholic alliance against him, Henry VIII tried to persuade his nephew to make the same break from Rome that he had, telling James that the, the problems of the country were down to Catholics and foreigners and that Scotland would be fucked without him and how would we how would we get on with the Europeans anyway? We'd need to keep the pound. The euro's just a disaster. All our oil was running out. And why would we want to join an alliance with Europe but we could have an alliance with England, the greatest country in the world, you know? And so Henry invited James to York in 1541 to discuss theological and religious differences. Now, James didn't formally accept Henry's invitation, but still, Henry VIII was expecting him to attend, and he waited in York until September before it came clear that James wasn't coming. James, he didn't want to go on holiday with his uncle for the same reason that Wills and Harry didn't want to go on holiday with their uncle. You know, he insisted on sharing a room with them. And so James presumably didn't attend because he didn't want to upset the Pope. James V was happy with the status quo as he was receiving huge sums of money from Rome precisely not to break from the church in the same way that Henry VIII had done. In July 1542, Henry VIII joined the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in a war against France. Now this allowed him to turn his attentions to Scotland without fear of French support for Scotland. 
And in 1542, Henry VIII began raiding southern Scotland. On the 24th of August, 1542, a Scottish force of around 2,000 defeated a larger English force at the Battle of Haddon Rig, just outside of Kelso. But it was brief respite, however, as Henry VIII resurrected old claims of English suzerainty over Scotland and declared war in 1543. In June 1543, Henry VIII commissioned the Duke of Norfolk to carry out a full-scale invasion of Scotland. An army of 20,000, far too large for the Scots to engage, burned Kelso and Roxburgh before running out of supplies and being forced to return to Berwick. James's response was to feign an attack in the southeast while he planned a larger assault from the southwest, which should have been a pretty easy bluff to see through. Do you know I mean you're always more likely to suffer an assault in the southwest of Scotland as opposed to the southeast? And so James summoned his forces, uh, summoned his forces at Lauder on the twentieth of November, fifteen forty-two, while another force was mustering in Peebles further west. Now, James moved from Lauder to meet his western forces and peoples, but the English were alerted in the nick of time. Sir Thomas Wharton, deputy warden of the marches, was able to muster a force to oppose the Scots. On the 24th of November 1542, a large raiding party of Scots, under the command of the Warden of the West March, Lord Maxwell, crossed the border, leaving the main bulk of the Scottish forces in Scotland. And what would follow was the Battle of Solway Moss. Maxwell, like a tourist uh, arriving in Edinburgh, presumably did not expect to encounter such a large English presence, and the raiding nobles found themselves boxed in and most of the Scots were forced to flee or to surrender. James, he returned to Edinburgh, his military strategy in tatters. Now, the majority of his army was intact and losses were small. This was nothing like the defeat of Flodden, but any further raids into England were now out of the question. James ordered that the border defences be strengthened in case the English tried to follow up their victory at Solway Moss, and he then rode to Linlithgow, where Marie de Guise was about to give birth. James was unwell at this point, possibly suffering from dysentery or cholera, and he retired to his favourite palace at Falkland, where his condition deteriorated quickly. And when, you ca- and when news came that the Queen had given birth to a baby girl on the 8th of December 1542, James uttered the now famous words, It came the last and it'll gang with the lass. News of a baby girl left James convinced the Stuart line was coming to an end. In fact, the Stuart dynasty would last another 172 years. It was like the Simpsons. It would go on far longer than it should have, well, well past its best. And after uttering these famous gloomy words on his deathbed, James V died six days later on the 14th of December 1542, and his 60-day-old daughter, Mary, would become Queen and the most written about figure from Scottish history, Mary Queen of Scots. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if this is the first one of the series that you've listened to, then check out some of the other episodes. It's all the same thing. If you like this one, you'll like the rest as well. Uh, you can contribute to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast uh, by buying me the equivalent of a cup of coffee. You can do that at buymeacoffee.com. I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. Likewise, if you've been listening to most of the episodes and you'd like to become a regular contributor, uh, you can go and you become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. Again, I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland and you can basically give me the equivalent of a price of a cup of coffee or a pint every single month. It's all massively, massively appreciated. What I try to do is I try to raise enough money so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. And what I do is on each podcast, I try and match what I've been talking about in the podcast 
with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And um, today's podcast, I'm going to match with Bruachladdich, um, which is an Islay whiskey. Um, oh, well, they've got different ranges. The Bruachladdich, the classic Bruachladdich, is actually unpeated. It's the only unpeated whiskey on Islay. But they've got different reg- They've got different kind of um, ranges, from kind of heavily peated to, to mild peated. But like I say, the classic Bruachladdich is, is unpeated. And the reason I'm matching that with James V is because James V is Scotland's... He's Scotland's patron of architecture. You know, all of the kind of impressive buildings that we go to visit in Scotland, uh, most of them are attributed to James V. And so I got thinking to myself, what is like, what is the whiskey bottle that I think looks the coolest? And the Bruach Laddick have got really cool looking bottles. So that's basically the only reason why I'm matching it to them. Also, it's an incredible, delicious, amazing dram that you're going to love. Anyway, you can nominate someone to receive that bottle by leaving me some money at uh, Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon. Uh, You can send me an email. You can send me a DM through social media uh, and basically I just pick someone at random. If you want to fo- follow me online on um, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I'm just on there at Montebank Tours. And like I say, I just choose someone at random. Um, and I should also point out that this is the actual last episode of the what, what we'll call the first season of the Montebank History of Scotland podcast. This is our 20th episode uh, after this comes Mary Queen of Scots, so it seems like a pretty sensible place to take a wee break um, and come back and make sure that we we give Mary the correct love and attention that she deserves. Uh, so it's a good number to stop on 20 for a wee break, and we'll be back in a few weeks' time to talk about Mary Queen of Scots. Um, you can still continue to send me messages and nominate people for bottles of whiskey, and if I have enough money in those accounts, then I'll continue to choose people and, and send the bottles. If you, you've, if you have been listening to the entire series, thank you so, so much for supporting and listening to the podcast, guys. Uh, my first podcast I did was all the way back in May, so it's been almost half a year doing this, um, and... Really, really appreciate all the love and support. If you have been listening to these episodes, I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, right, so basically, uh, give me a wee follow on social media at Montebank Tours. Um, like the podcast, rate the podcast, tell a friend, do all the things that people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. And uh, I'll be back in a few weeks with your podcast about Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, hope to see you all then. Look after yourselves. Cheerio now. Bye bye. <laughs>